Welcome to the second episode in our series, The System Journey, where we are talking about dementia and the healthcare system. We appreciate the support of the Geriatric Health Research System Group at the University of Waterloo for this series. Today we are talking with Ron Roberts. Ron was diagnosed with dementia a few years ago, and to maintain his health, among other things, he is enrolled at King's College at Western University in London, Ontario, and plans to finish his BA in 2021. Ron talks of his own experience and also touches a bit on the experience of Indigenous people. Ron himself is Métis. While a student at King's, Ron has also begun to give presentations to social work students, health science students, and also away from the university to various healthcare worker training sessions. So thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed on our podcast series, Dementia Dialogue. What we're doing in this series is to explore people's experience uh, with the healthcare system in terms of their experience with dementia. What I'd like to do is to kind of divide our interview into two parts. One is for you to talk a little bit about yourself and about your own experience with uh, healthcare and your diagnosis. And then also, then in the second part, talk about your agreeing to give presentations to students at the medical school at uh, Western University and to talk a little bit about what your what the content of your message is to them and also then what your reflection is on your experience with those students. Does it uh, make you feel hopeful? Do, do you find it a little bit discouraging? Maybe we could start off then with uh, you talking a little bit about who you are, you know, what your current uh, situation is, and then a little bit of your experience with healthcare. Yeah, well, I was diagnosed about five years ago with uh, Alzheimer's. After I'd finished the test with a doctor from the province, I, I can't remember her name. All she said was, it was nice talking to you, Ron. We'll hopefully meet again. And then two days later, I got a call from my uh, family doctor. I got bad news for you. You've lost your driver's license and you have Alzheimer's. And that was it. Wow. And I was in a bit of a shock over that one because I, I really didn't know what the hell to say or do. I, so we just hung up and that was the end of it. Just a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of guidance at the time of the diagnosis would have helped a lot. I didn't know about the Alzheimer's Society of Canada or any of the other organizations. And so I just came home and started to look up Alzheimer's on the internet. And what I found was a whole bunch of suggestions with no empirical background to them. With It was just, well, learn a language, try to learn a language, uh, do puzzles, uh, go to meetings. Now that I'd really like to know if any of these work before I start on them, but there was no empirical evidence, as I said. So I started by taking French and I did that for about a year. After about a year, I, I found it wasn't really doing much for me. And I got bored with it, to be perfectly honest. So intuitively, I thought of university. It's always been a bucket wish for me. Uh, I dropped out of school in grade nine because we were a large family. 
growing up in Halifax, and that was in the 40s. And there was just no way my family or I could afford university at that time. It was pretty elitist back then. So I went to work. And fortunately, I ended up in broadcasting. I went in, did an interview at 16 at CFQC Radio and Television in Saskatoon. And I'll be darned, I got the job. And I started the next day. But all my time in broadcasting and in political reporting, which I've done, I've, I always felt a little inadequate. So I've had this bucket wish since I was 16, to be honest, to go to university. So university, by testing me almost on a daily basis, because you have to do the readings, then you got to go into class and participate in various discussions and try to follow the professor's uh, theme of, of that particular class. And that, that every day it's tested that way. But on top of that, what I found was, in addition to the testing, the social aspects of being on campus were tremendous. Uh, in fact, I think right now, because I'm in isolation, I'm missing the campus like you wouldn't believe. I think the social aspects of it are just as important as the other. So the combination of the two have really helped me. So, Ron, you um, kind of came to this uh, a realization of the importance of challenging your brain and developing your brain. You kind of came to that uh, realization of making that decision pretty well on your own, based on your own research. Yes. And your your own kind of uh, willpower yeah. to you know enroll at the university and uh, start taking courses. The other thing I did too, David, was... When I decided to enroll in university, I decided I wanted to get into good physical shape as well. Because you know, at our age, we sit around too much. So I started a walking regime, and I walk every day. And I found the walking was also helpful. <laughs> what was good, it was also helpful with university. Because as I'm walking, I'm thinking about the courses I'm taking and the class maybe I had yesterday. I start writing papers in my mind while I'm walking. I think you mentioned that, uh, you know, that your GP got these notes from whoever the, uh, you know, the physician was who did the testing. Mm -hmm. He uh, took your license, told you you had Alzheimer's disease, and that was, that it. was it. That was that. That, that was it. it. No, there was no literature in the offices. No suggestion that I call Alzheimer's Society or Alzheimer's of Canada. Or, and I've been trying to talk to people for the last three or four years that we've got to get that information into the family doctor's offices. But so far, nobody has sort of made a move that way. I know there's a lot of funding goes into Alzheimer's. Surely to God, they can find a way of getting that information into the medical offices. Even if, even if he had that in front of me and said, here, Ron, here's a brochure on where you can go and what you can do, that would have been tremendous. But in fact, I just got sort of waved off. Now, have you continued to use this uh, physician as your family doctor, or? Yeah, he's a, he's a nice young guy. Like I'm, I don't want I don't like knocking him because he, he really is. Yeah. And overall, he's been quite good. But when it comes to the mental side of it, I'm afraid that training just hasn't been gotten. People I've spoken to in various meetings that I've gone to, and we've gone to a lot of meetings. 
I've heard this same story over and over again. It, it, like I say, it, it's more common than the other way. There are doctors, I'm sure, that are out there doing it, but they're a small percentage of the medical practice. Now, Ron, when you say you've gone to meetings, since uh, diagnosis and since starting university, have you made connections then with other organizations or other groups regarding Alzheimer's? Yeah, I've with Western University and, of course, with King's. Oh, two months ago, I did a conference in Chatham. It was the healthcare workers of that region. It was one of these educational healthcare things. They were tremendous. I, I really enjoyed those, that group. I've got a real hang-up now with the researchers. What I find with the research in the medical profession is that they're not doing enough research, if any, on how to live with these various things that we have. And that's really important. It seems all they're looking for are bloody pills. And I'm not a big believer in pills. I think the brain is the best weapon we have. And if the brain starts to go down, then we've got to get it to work. So look at ways to live with these things. I, I think so. And that's not just Alzheimer's. That's, that's almost any kind of a mental uh, disturbance, if you will. But I find that it, it, that's lacking. It's like, okay, you got this and you got that. Take these pills and go home. That's the way I look at it now. And I'm not happy yeah. with that. I hope that message is beginning to uh, uh, sink in with researchers. I think there's a little bit more openness to hearing the message of people with lived experience about you know, the need to be able to live a satisfactory life while uh, also contributing, perhaps, to seeking a cure. But you have to live in the moment. But I'd like to see more of these medical associations. Like, they have meetings all over the place. Invite some of us to those meetings. Like, I'd, I'd be pleased to go talk to a whole bunch of doctors and lay it on the line how we feel as people living with this disability. You know, the, the real experts are the ones living with it. So... We should be out there in the front lines and we should be included in a heck of a lot more of the educational stuff outside of our universities. But we need to put that social aspect in with the doctors. Now, uh, Ron, you uh, have given talks uh, at King's to the uh, social work students, I think you mentioned, right. and also to uh, medical students. Yes, I have. Um, could you describe a little bit about the... Uh, sort of the setting in which you give the talk and then some of the key messages that you try to get across to uh, these young people going into these professions? Well, the message is that they're the generation we've been waiting for. We have slipped so badly in the whole social justice area. In the last few years, I've been talking about seniors' homes, these warehouses for seniors. They're just a bloody nuisance and really a crime that we treat the seniors that way. The uh, PSWs, they're overworked and underpaid, and we've been saying that for a damn it, 10 years, as far as I know, and I've been on that bandwagon for a number of years. And I volunteer at the long-term care center in uh, Adonida. Oh, yes. And they can do it. And I've come to the conclusion, and I know some people are going to be really annoyed with me, get business the hell out of social care. 
They don't believe in it. They don't belong in health care at all. In terms of um, your advice to students about you know, working with uh, people with dementia or with their care partners, do you have any, could you kind of give me a little bit of a sense of what the message you give to them? Yeah, it, it's everybody's problem. It's not just those of us that are living with dementia today. It's a problem that every family's touched by. And they're going to be even more so as, as we grow older as a society. And they, they really have to work with these people. And, and I tell my students, not my students, but the students, that success can't be measured in money. There's no secret to it. The real secret is contentment. If you reach a stage in your life where you're content with what you're doing, you're successful. If you're not content, you're not successful. And how to talk to seniors. They just don't take the time they should take with us sometimes. If they took two or three minutes at the beginning of a session, for example, that's not asking a lot. And that sometimes is all the senior really wants. When I get pushed, and I think dementia has something to do with it. When I get pushed by a doctor, like, what's your name? What's happening to you? You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? I start getting nervous and and I get anxious and I get upset. I don't like being pushed, but I never did, but even more so at this age. So I, I tell our, our young people, be patient with, with our seniors. And it doesn't mean you have to sit there for an hour. Just take that two or three minutes to make them feel at ease and that the doctor's there to help you. But when they come at you, like, hurry up and tell me what it is because I've got all kinds of other patients. I don't give a damn about the other patients at that time. I'm worried about what I'm going in that doctor's office for. And I want him to speak to me like he would speak to one of his own like children or one of his own uh, parents or whatever. Not just push me through like a number. And I find that's happened across the board too often. And I again, I hear that from other elders too. And there's a couple of things. There is one, one point that different cultures have different taboos, if you will. But I was reading a study that was done on the indigenous peoples. And one of our people, I think it was an Oneida lady, when the doctor or the student or whoever was interviewing her, he or she took out a book and started writing notes. And she just felt panicked. They couldn't understand why. But if they knew our history properly, they would know why. Because this poor old lady had gone through the school system, the, the uh, residential schools she went through the 60s scoop so as soon as they start taking their names they're afraid you're going to send them away to one of these bloody institutions so you you've got to really take time to get to know who you're speaking to and some of their background because that can make a big difference and and how you feel mentally makes such a difference you know if you walk away feeling good you're going to heal when you feel good you're not feeling good you're not going to heal We've got to do things to make them feel like we we want them and, and, and we respect them. I think those are the keys. I think that's a really important uh, message, Ron. The, you know, the simplicity of, of the human interaction of somebody, you know, asking a question and listening to the answer. Exactly. And, and can really, uh, I, I think that healing conversation is, is critical. 
and something that gets lost in uh, so much of uh, medicine and healthcare uh, in the moment. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Our conversation was super. Ron's core message about encouragement and listening are key ingredients in a positive healthcare experience. Check out our resource page for more information and tools for positive interactions with the healthcare system. You can also visit us on Facebook. You may wish to comment on this or other episodes, and please do so. Also, you can help us reach more people by liking us on Facebook. In our next episode, we will be talking with Michelle Janice, a First Link coordinator in Chatham-Kent in southwestern Ontario. Thanks for listening. My name is David Harvey.